Acts chapter 6, we read about a problem in the early days of the church. Some widows were being overlooked by other church members, and it turns out it was an ethnic issue. The locals weren't getting along with those from out of town. And today, we'll look a little deeper into the problem and try and connect their solution back to a story in the book of Numbers. Welcome to episode 50, Living Sacrifices. Well, thanks for coming back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I appreciate your willingness to click on this option just one more time. And in today's episode, we'll continue on in our march through the book of Acts. We're slowly going through kind of chapter by chapter, but not exactly. And today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6. It's in chapter 6 that we're introduced to Stephen, who gets martyred in chapter 7. But he's part of a group of seven men here in chapter 6 that get called out and commissioned for a specific purpose. So let's just start by setting up the problem. Because it seems like up until this point, everyone seems to be getting along just pretty great in the early church. People are selling real estate, sharing all their proceeds, like Barnabas in Acts 4.34. Well, sure, there were those like Ananias and Sapphira where it didn't work out very well. But hey, even they likely gave a majority of their proceeds before they died. And here in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and it's here in the first verse where this term disciples is used. And I think we probably need to unpack a little bit because this term gets used differently as things progress throughout the story in the New Testament. going to just read a few comments by Newman and Nida out of the handbook on the Acts of the Apostles. They say this, It may be necessary to employ a term for disciples, which is different from the expression used in the translation of the Gospels. So if in the Gospels one has used a phrase such as those whom Jesus taught or those who learned from Jesus, here in Acts it's necessary, they say, to employ an expression which would indicate an indirect association with Jesus. For example, those who were followers of Jesus. If the word followers here means adherence to rather than immediate companions of. They finish their thought this way. In fact, Many translations use simply believers for disciples in the book of Acts. The number of disciples kept growing, it says here in verse 1, is rendered in many languages as there were more people who became believers, or more and more people believed in Jesus. And so those thoughts from Newman and Nida, I thought, were good just to kind of set the scene. Verse 1, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Well, who are those disciples? Are they, are they like the 12 disciples? Did they hang out with Jesus all the time? We're quickly, in the book of Acts, getting to a situation where people are coming to faith in Jesus who possibly never met Jesus. It'll happen here in Jerusalem first, but then as we expand in future chapters into Samaria and into Paul's journeys, lots of people never even met Jesus. 
but they become disciples of Jesus. And so I think Newman and Nida help give us an idea of how we can parse these different disciples out as we go through the story. And then in verse 1, after the disciples' comment, we read about this Hebrew versus Hellenistic conflict. And you might not really know or understand the difference between the two. (laughs) Honestly, you might not even care about the difference between the two. But my goal is, at least after today's episode, you'll be able to make a little better sense of what's going on here in the early church. And because, to be honest, the descriptions used here can be a little complicated to decipher, there's a bit of grammar at play as well as some extensive history in the original setting. So I thought I'd bring in some heavy hitters from academia to cover some of the intricacies. And first, we're just going to continue with Newman and Nida out of the Handbook of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, in the version I read, it says a complaint arose on part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Newman and Nida say that this complaint is sometimes translated as a quarrel or a disagreement. But they say that others understand this Greek word to mean a secret murmuring that was not openly discussed. So we don't know exactly to what degree the problem was made public. But isn't that often how it is in church? There are often secret murmurings that are not done openly. And so just right off the bat here, I'm feeling right at home in this story already. I mean, I get the murmuring part of it, but this Hellenistic Jews versus the native Hebrews, evidently the rift or the complaint or whatever was going on was between these two groups. And sometimes I think we just sort of gloss over these terms and just say, oh, it's something I'm never going to really understand. But this one, this one's pretty easy to understand. So regarding the Hellenistic Jews, Newman and Nida say that sometimes that Hellenistic term is translated as Greek-speaking Jews. So depending on your Bible translation, you might have read Greek-speaking Jews there. But most translations translate it as Hellenists. And most commentators understand Hellenists in this context to mean Greek-speaking Jews. So what's going on in chapter 6? Evidently, there's this complaint. And one of the parties in the complaint are Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews. But I want to even clarify that a little bit more because we're talking about the early church now. So while there was a Greek-speaking Jewish contingency in Jerusalem, it is another category that these people have hopped into when they come to faith in Christ. So these Hellenistic Jews were believing Hellenistic Jews. They were Christian Hellenistic Jews. And that just seems like an identity crisis waiting to happen. So that's one side of the problem. On the other side of the problem, it talks about the native Hebrews. And sometimes that's just translated as straight Hebrews. If you look in the NASB, the word native before Hebrews, it's in italics, which means it's not there in the original. So we're just talking about Hebrews. And Newman and Nida say that there's a fairly unanimous agreement regarding the meaning of Hebrews here. And most people agree that it refers to Aramaic-speaking Jews of Palestine. And some would like this to be rendered simply as those who lived in Jerusalem, and by that implying that Greek-speaking Jews were visitors from other areas. So that's how some would like to handle that. But others prefer to render this phrase as Jews who spoke only the Jewish language, or maybe Jews who spoke only Aramaic. And I'll be talking about the difference between Aramaic and Hebrew languages in just a little bit, but 
just wanted to get back to Newman and Nida because they say, in Jerusalem, there were many widows of men who had lived most of their lives outside of the holy city, but had come to Jerusalem to die and to be buried there. And in order to care for these widows, the Jews had set up means whereby they would be given money for food. And evidently, the Christian community had adopted a similar custom. And that's what we're reading about here, they suggest. And they also say, just to clarify, that the daily serving of food mentioned at the end of chapter 1 is literally in the daily distribution. And it may be taken to refer to either funds or food. And they say that in light of the manner in which the Jews themselves handled the care for widows, it's quite likely that the distribution here is that of money rather than food. So it might be a better way to translate the idea of what's going on here. Instead of saying the daily serving of food, maybe it could be translated the daily distribution of funds. Or they suggest also the money that was given for the widow's needs of each day. So that from Newman and Nida, very helpful, the handbook on the Acts of the Apostles. If you are looking for a great resource for the book of Acts, that's one of them for sure. So moving on a little bit, you might wonder, <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe you don't, but I did this last week, so now you're going to get to hear a little about it. <laughs> you might wonder what language Jesus spoke, and you might guess it was Hebrew, and that seems logical, I guess, but the details are a little more complicated than that, because it turns out that the Hebrew language wasn't being used as much even centuries before Jesus came to town. The common language of the Jews in Jesus' day was Aramaic. It's a sister language to Hebrew. It shares the same alphabet. So to the untrained eye, Hebrew and Aramaic side by side look exactly the same. And they do share some of the same vocabulary. And we know that it was being used even in Old Testament times, because small sections of the Old Testament are even written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. And as impressive as that may have sounded just then, that's all I know from the courses I've taken. But I did look Aramaic up on Britannica.com, and I found some interesting stuff. So let's dive into that for just a second. That website says that Aramaic is thought to have first appeared among the Arameans in the 11th century BC. And by the 8th century BC, it had become accepted by the Assyrians as a second language. And if you know anything about the Assyrians, the mass deportations of people by them, and the use of Aramaic as a common language of people in the second language situation, that helped to spread the language so that in the 7th and 6th centuries BC, it gradually supplanted Akkadian as that well-known second language of the Middle East. And it subsequently became the official language of the Persian dynasty. That was a long one from 559 to 330 BC. And it was only after the conquest of Alexander the Great, where Greek started to displace it, as the official language throughout the former Persian Empire. Aramaic dialects survived, it says, into Roman times. However, it was particularly in Palestine and Syria. And Aramaic had replaced Hebrew as the language of the Jews as early as the 6th century BC. And then it mentions that certain portions of the Bible in Daniel and Ezra are actually written in Aramaic. 
as are the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds. And you might not be familiar with that term either, so let's dive further down that rabbit hole. The Talmuds are just collections of Jewish civil and ceremonial law and some legends mixed in. And there are two versions of the Talmud, one from the Babylonian time period and one earlier from Jerusalem. And it's from these writings of laws and legends that Jewish cultural life was defined. Uh, All of those are written in Aramaic as well. So among the Jews, Aramaic is used by the common people, while Hebrew remained the language of religion and government and of the upper class. So Jesus and the apostles are believed to have spoken Aramaic, and that language continued in wide use until about, really, 650 of the Common Era, A.D., when it was supplanted by Arabic. So that escalated rather quickly. Sorry about that. It's probably more than you wanted to know about Aramaic, but I believe it sets up our situation here in the beginning of Acts chapter 6. So it was the Jews that were originally from Jerusalem. They likely spoke Aramaic as their first language. But here in the early church, there were Jews living in Jerusalem that weren't originally from there. And it's many of these that would have grown up somewhere else. They would have mainly spoken Greek, and they would have likely adopted many of the Greek ways of living. They had been Hellenized. And the hell in Hellenized has nothing to do with our concept of hell. The Greek word for Greece is hellas. So that's how we get to Hellenized, through the Greek word for Greek, Hellene. So when the text says that someone is a Hellenistic Jew, that just means they've been all greased up with the culture and the language and the Greek way of thinking. So when we come to the events of Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of distributions, and that may have been food or money or both. Now, I know this probably hasn't occurred to you because you're still thinking about the whole Aramaic discussion we just had. And because it's been a whole chapter that separates these stories, but this little complaint about not sharing the food or distributions It arose shortly after Ananias and Sapphira were struck down dead for not sharing well. Just after Ananias and Sapphira died, the text tells us in Acts 5.11 that a great fear came over the whole church. And it seems like they would remember what happened for at least a couple chapters. But no. And it's this that reminds me a little of the story of the exodus out of Egypt in the Old Testament. You remember, God threw down those ten plagues on the people in the land and gave the Hebrews their freedom. And then just a couple chapters later, they're complaining about not having any food and water and saying they want to go back to Egypt, where there was at least something to eat. Well, if the Bible doesn't teach us anything else— It does teach us that we humans have very short memories. So, just one chapter after the story of Ananias and Sapphira, there are some in the church who are deliberately withholding food and money from needy widows. And as I thought about this more, this came to mind as well. At least some of these people are the ones that were present there at the miracle of the tongue speaking in Acts chapter 2. And then, 
Those same people heard about the quick and sudden death of that married couple who didn't play well with others, and now the hometown folks have quickly become selfish and are only serving those who were originally from the Holy Land. In other words, they were letting their visitors know that they had overstayed their welcome. And that sounds about right. That's more like parts of the church that we're all familiar with, people standing up for their pet peeves instead of going the extra mile to share and serve. Now, don't get me wrong. We sometimes do a very good job of fighting the urge. But I think the Bible supports the idea that standing up for ourselves, it's a human condition. We like our own. And did you see how fast that perspective slithered its way into the early church? So it's in verse 2 that the 12, the 12 apostles, they summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And I remember trying to pull this one when I was a pastor. Uh, It didn't work very well. (laughs) But here in Acts chapter 6, they come up with a great solution. They suggest that seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, should be selected from among the brethren. That will free the twelve up to do their job, and these that are chosen can take care of this situation that has arisen, this ethnic dispute within the congregation. And in the text, in verse 5, when these seven men are named, you may not realize it, but all of those names are Greek names. They're Hellenized names. The Jews that are chosen to take care of the problem of the Hellenistic widows not getting what they deserve, they're all Hellenistic Jews themselves. And that makes sense. And it appears six of these were Jewish from birth, but one of them was a Gentile who had gone through the formal process of converting to the Jewish faith. And this included a long, detailed process that ended with physical circumcision. So that's who they picked to care for the problem, Christian, Hellenistic, Jewish men, to look after the Christian, Hellenistic, Jewish widows. And I said it that way on purpose because these, again, are not Hellenistic Jews, but they are another set of Hellenistic Jews that have professed faith in Christ. So another category. And that's important to understand because Hellenists are mentioned only three times in Scripture. They're all here in the book of Acts, and this in chapter 6 is the first time that we come across it. We also see it in chapter 9, verse 29, and again in eleven twenty. And it's out of the textual commentary for the book of Acts that Metzger put together. He says this, in Acts 6, 1, the fact that the Hellenists felt their own widows were being neglected, it suggests some tension already existed between these two groups since often Jews looked with suspicion upon their countrymen who had adopted the Greek culture. Metzger talks about the next time we come across this term is in Acts 9.29, where Paul is debating with the Hellenists in Jerusalem. And in that case, those are Hellenistic Jews that have not come to faith in Christ. They're in Acts 9.29. And he points this out because it's these Hellenistic Jews that sought to kill Paul. And the last time that we read about the Hellenists in the book of Acts is in Acts 11.20. Luke there refers to the Christians who had been scattered because of the stoning of Stephen, and they were scattered because they feared those who killed Stephen. And because of that, they spoke the gospel only to Jews. 
Yet it says, some continued to speak to the Hellenists. It's the Hellenists that also went after Stephen. So, although they are a small part of the story of Acts, I think it's important to learn as much as we can about these distinctions. There were Jews. There were Greeks. There were Jews that had adopted the Greek lifestyle. There were Greeks that had adopted the Jewish lifestyle. And then there were Christian versions of all of these as well. There were Hebrew Jews that had converted to Christ. There were Hellenized Jews that came to Christ. There were Greek proselytes that converted to Judaism and then believed in Jesus. And finally, there were just Greeks that came to faith in Jesus. So when we come to the text, we often like to think in terms of just Jew and Gentile, that there were these two groups out there. But here in Acts chapter 6, we get a brief glimpse, a window into the ethnic minorities that were at play in Jesus's day. And it allows us to come to understand something, that just like my 12th birthday, it was way more complicated than we think it was. So they picked these seven men to take care of the widows. And the text says in Acts 6.3 that they were of good reputation and full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now, a lot has been written about how we might be able to think of these men as the first deacons, a term that some congregations even use today. I'm not going to speak to that today, but I would like to end this episode with the particular way that they were commissioned. The text says in Acts 6.6 that these men were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. It reminds me a little of a picture that we had taken when I was in college. There were four of us guys living in an apartment, and we randomly got one of those Olin Mills calls. I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with that, but Olin Mills uh, takes pictures, usually family portraits, and they did a lot of it back in the 80s and 90s. Well, one day we got a call from Olin Mills, the four of us in college, and we had no intention of ever buying a picture. Let me just be upfront with that. So we may have been a little dishonest in that way. We were also dishonest in saying that it was going to be a family picture and that we were all related. <laughs> and that was definitely not the case. So all that said, the four of us college roommates got together. We dressed up. We went to Olin Mills one day. And we had some of the most ridiculous looking pictures taken that have ever been taken. And at the very end, the photographer said, is there any other shots that you wanted to take? And I looked at my roommates and I said, I think we should do the laying on of ties. <laughs> and so one of my roommates sat down in a chair and the other three of us were behind him. And we all had ties on that day. And we took our ties and we laid them over his head. And honestly, it was the favorite picture of the day that we didn't buy. And it's become known as the laying on of ties. But here in Acts chapter 6, we have the laying on of hands. And just a couple comments out of the commentary for the New Testament use of the Old Testament, this by Marshall. He says that the laying on of hands was to confer authority. And it goes back to the appointment of Joshua in Numbers chapter 27. He says the Old Testament parallel confirms that this is the conferral of authority on persons who already possess the Spirit. 
This is not a giving out of the Spirit. It confers authority for a task that needs to be fulfilled. That's what it did for Joshua when Moses laid his hands on Joshua's head. And so there's that aspect of laying on of hands, conferring authority. But that wasn't the only time in the Old Testament where the laying on of hands was used. People did this with sacrifices in the temple as well. And there was one time in Numbers chapter 8 where the people laid hands on the Levites as a sacrifice. This is one of those little stories that you probably passed over because it was in the book of Numbers. (laughs) But I think it's worthy of going back and visiting that episode. Because I didn't say that they sacrificed the Levites, but it's the Levites that were presented as a sacrifice before the Lord. If you remember, it was the Levites that stood up for the Lord during the golden calf incident at Mount Sinai. And because of that, because of them coming up and defending the Lord amongst their brethren, the Levites became the priestly tribe, and they were separated out from the rest of the nation. And it all happened in a ceremony back in Numbers chapter 8. We'll be in verses 5 through 22 as I talk about this. It says that God gave Moses these instructions. Verse 6, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. They sprinkled them with water, they shaved, put on new clothes. And then in verse 9, it says, So you shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before the Lord. And the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And I hope you're beginning to see maybe a connection between this story and the similarities with our Acts passage, a group of people being separated out for a specific task. But there's something more in this Numbers passage. In Numbers 8.15, it says, Then, after that, the Levites might go in to serve at the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. The Levites were presented as a wave offering. And that might not seem very weird in our setting, but in that setting, it was really strange. Because the word for offering there, it's a sacrifice. The Levites were given as a sacrifice before the Lord at the tabernacle. That's what they did with animals. It's what they did with grain and bread. It's not what they did with people. And that was for one main reason, because the sacrifices were killed in the process. The animals were killed before they were offered. The grain was harvested and ground up before it was offered. And as far as I know, this Numbers passage, it describes the only situation in the entirety of the Old Testament where the sacrifice remained alive. In other words, the Levites were the only living sacrifices presented in the Old Testament. But that's not the only time the concept is discussed. And some of you are already one step ahead of me. There are some that think that Paul in the New Testament might be referring back to this Numbers 8 passage when he wrote Romans 12.1. And it says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. According to Paul, 
all believers are called to offer themselves up to the congregation as living sacrifices. I think we get the picture early out in the wilderness with the Levites, and I think the seven Hellenistic believers in Acts chapter 6 are offered up in the same way, in service to the Lord for a specific purpose that they were well-equipped to accomplish. And the cool thing is that each of us have been equipped for a specific purpose. We all have our thing to do. And at any given moment, I believe God also has a specific place for each of us to be, using our gifts and our talents. Life circumstances will arise that often propel us into those places to be where we can practice our things to do. And I think that's one of the things the seven men in Acts chapter 6 are showing us, the willingness to step into a place of service a place where they were specifically gifted to fill. Not everyone had the heart for the Hellenistic widows, but these men did, and they answered the call, and when the apostles placed their hands on them, they became the latest rendition of, and great examples of, living sacrifices in service of the Christ Jesus. Well, that's it for this episode, and I'm challenged every day with the thoughts of me, myself, being gifted with talents and given opportunities out there in the world to use those talents in service for the glory of Jesus, the Nazarene. And it's when we find our place to be and we offer ourselves up to do the things that we've been called to do, that's how we become the living sacrifices that Paul describes. That's really good stuff to think on. In the next episode, we'll begin to look at the movement of the Jesus message out of Jerusalem as the story begins to move from there out to the ends of the earth. Well, thanks for listening. And if you haven't talked to someone recently about what's going on here, I just encourage you to ask yourself, why not? And that's just one of the reasons why I always remind you to be sure to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.